You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today's episode is part three in our series on Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery. Last time on the show, we left the Corps at what is present-day Sioux City, Iowa. Lewis and Clark had treated with the Oto Indians and dealt with the desertion of Private Moses Reed. Reed had been caught and expelled from the Corps, but he would go to the Mandan villages as a boatman. We concluded with the death of Sergeant Charles Floyd, who died from a ruptured appendix. The date was August 20th, 1804. So, before we continue up the Missouri with the Corps of Discovery, I want to take note of the detailed narrative of this amazing journey. I think one of the really unique experiences of the Lewis and Clark expedition is that the source documents give us a really detailed day-to-day account of the Corps of Discovery, which is unique in history. With so many explorers, we often find gaps in the narrative and just end up with weeks and months of not really knowing what happened in that time frame. Thus, this story is amazing in the rich detail that it provides, and I hope you have enjoyed it. The first order of business for Captains Meriwether Lewis and William Clark was to replace Charles Floyd, who is one of the three sergeants within the expedition. To do so, an election was held on August 22nd, and the newly raised sergeant was Patrick Gass, a veteran soldier from Pennsylvania. With that done, the expedition pushed up river, approaching Sioux Indian Territory. As we have discussed in past episodes, the Sioux were considered the great power of the Native American tribes in the region. Lewis and Clark, and Thomas Jefferson, felt that if the Sioux could be turned to the American cause, or isolated from the other Indian tribes, it would go a long way toward establishing American dominance over the area, including the valuable fur trade. But the Sioux had little reason to trust the Americans. The Americans represented the expansion of white settlers, and the British and Spanish pointedly informed the Sioux, as well as the other tribes in the area, that the Americans would take their lands as thousands of settlers would move west. The British said that they just wanted to trade with the Indians, and they would be better off pushing back against the American menace. It was a compelling argument, and to be honest, it was pretty accurate. Anyhow, the Corps moved up the Missouri, the Sioux Nation only days away. On August 23rd, Private Joseph Field would kill the expedition's first buffalo. Within weeks, the Corps would be seeing great herds of the animals, herds that would number in the thousands. The buffalo were easy targets for the Americans with their advanced weaponry and skilled marksmen. Buffalo meat would become a dietary staple of the Corps. In fact, in the late summer and fall of 1804, the Corps would eat very well. In addition to buffalo, there was elk and deer and goat and beaver and more. Over the next couple of months, the journals of Lewis and Clark were filled with almost daily notations of what animals were brought in by the party's hunters. Also, the men's diets would be supplemented by fruits and nuts. 
I've read that during these days, when the Corps was pushing hard upriver, the average man could consume 8 to 10 pounds of meat in a day. That's an extraordinary number, but it demonstrates just how much energy these men were expending to move the big keelboat upriver. On August 26th, just a day before the Corps reached the lands of the Sioux, Private George Shannon disappeared when he was sent to retrieve the expedition's two horses, which the captains thought had been stolen by some natives. Unlike Moses Reed, who the Corps determined early on was a deserter, Shannon, who at age 19 was the youngest member of the expedition, was considered a loyal soldier of good character. Instead, the concern was that he had been captured, or perhaps killed, by some native Indians. Over the next few days, Lewis and Clark would send out men, including the skilled hunter and tracker George Truyer, in search of Shannon. We will resolve Private Shannon's fate shortly, but first I want to dive into the Corps' first encounter with the Sioux Indians. On August 27th, the expedition reached what is now Yankton, South Dakota. They were entering Yankton Sioux territory. Thankfully, the Corps had Pierre Dorian Sr. with them. Dorian was a French trapper and trader who had married a Yankton Sioux woman and had lived with the Sioux for many years. He had recently been brought into the expedition by Lewis and Clark. Dorian would not only be able to serve as an interpreter, but he would be a friendly and trusted face to the Yankton Sioux. Now, a quick word about the Sioux Nation. It is important to understand that the Sioux were not a single group. There were different Sioux tribes, divided into three linguistically and regionally based groups, and multiple subgroups. There were the Lakota, or Teton Sioux, who lived further north up the Missouri. Next, there were the Western Dakota, or Yankton Sioux, who we will meet momentarily. And finally, there were the Eastern Dakota, or Santee Sioux, who lived in what is now Minnesota, Northern Iowa, and the Eastern Dakotas. The Santee Sioux will not play a part in our story. The Yankton Sioux controlled the Missouri River at this juncture. Nothing could go up or down the river without their approval. To alert the Sioux of their presence, the Corps established a camp and then started a large bonfire as a signal. Initial contact was quickly made with the Sioux, and, using Dorian as an interpreter, it was learned that the main body of the tribe was not far off. Lewis and Clark sent Dorian, along with Sergeant Nathaniel Pryor, to meet with the Sioux and invite them to come and visit the Americans at a place called Calumet Bluff, a high bluff not far from Yankton, South Dakota, but on the Nebraska side of the river. By the way, Pryor would later tell the expedition about the Sioux Indians' handsome conical lodges made of buffalo skins and painted different colors. This would be the first report of the classic Native American teepee. While the expedition waited for the arrival of the Sioux, they continued to search for Private Shannon. It was here that they caught his trail. It turns out that Shannon was ahead of the party. He had gone up the Missouri, believing that the expedition was further upriver, and thus he was chasing nothing. Lewis and Clark would send men to try and catch Shannon, but they would have no luck. On August 29th, a group of 70 Yankton Sioux would arrive at the American camp. The next day, at Calumet Bluff, a council would take place. For the occasion, the Americans would put on a good show. Lewis and Clark would don their dress uniforms, and the men would run up the American flag and fire off the cannon and the air rifle. However, the powerful Yankton Sioux were not going to be overawed by the Americans. They put on a show of their own, arriving in full regalia, along with musicians and dancers. With Dorian translating, Lewis would give a standard speech to the Sioux, preaching friendship and peace, and announcing to the Sioux that they had a new great chief. Also, they stressed that the Americans would be better trading partners than the British, and in a short time, traders would follow the expedition up the river. Gifts would follow, including tobacco, medals, flags, and a military coat. The Sioux put on a display of their own for the Americans, demonstrating their skill with the bow and entertaining everyone with drums and singing and dancing. The men of the Corps loved the elaborate displays and gave gifts of tobacco in appreciation. The next day, the Yankton Sioux would return, and they would inform the Americans that what they wanted was guns and powder. 
They needed to be more powerful than their rivals, and medals and hats and flags weren't going to help them with that. Of course, this was the exact stuff that Lewis and Clark would not give them. The last thing the Americans wanted to do was make the native tribes even more powerful. It would leave the Yankton Sioux disappointed. Like the Oto, the Sioux had expected some cool gifts, things to make their lives better, things to make them stronger. But Lewis tried to explain to them that they weren't a trading venture. They were here to pave the way for traders. It was a concept the native people had a hard time grasping, especially when they saw this huge keelboat in the river that probably contained all sorts of interesting things. However, the Yankton Sioux did understand that the Americans offered them an opportunity. If the new great father could provide consistent and quality trade, it would greatly improve the fortunes of the Yankton Sioux. From the traders and merchants that came from St. Louis, they could get the goods and guns and ammunition that they wanted. That was very attractive to them. It is important to understand at this time that the Teton Sioux, to the north, were sort of the main hub of trade in the area as they were closer to the British in Canada. It made the Yankton Sioux sort of second-tier partners. The arrival of Americans was, therefore, of great interest to them, as it could dramatically change their lives. In the end, there was a sort of, yeah, this is interesting vibe from the Yankton Sioux, and that was a decent start for Lewis and Clark. One critical decision was that Lewis and Clark, as a gesture of friendship, agreed to leave Pierre Dorian, the interpreter, with the Yankton Sioux. After all, he had family with the Yankton Sioux. It was a risky decision, as the Corps would lose the only man in the party who could speak Sioux. Now, one last item I want to mention about this meeting with the Yankton Sioux was a story that a baby was born on the day of the council. According to legend, Captain Lewis wrapped the baby in an American flag and declared the child an American. The baby, a boy, would grow up to be a respected Sioux chief by the name of Struck by the Ree. This story, while commonly recounted throughout history, is almost assuredly not true. Someone attached this tale to the Lewis and Clark expedition, no doubt attempting to cast them as harbingers of American destiny. But it's a good story, even if it isn't true. After the meeting with the Yankton Sioux, the expedition continued upriver, moving northwest into what is present-day South Dakota. On September 7th, the Corps would get their first sightings of a burrowing rodent, which the French voyagers called Petite Chien, or the Prairie Dog, an animal that was not known to science up to this point. A few days later, on September 11th, the expedition would become whole again when they would find their wayward soldier, Private George Shannon. The keelboat and the two pirogues were going upriver, and they came upon Shannon sitting on the banks of the Missouri, almost starved to death. As noted earlier, Shannon had gotten separated from the expedition and had thought that the expedition was ahead of him, so he had tried to catch up. The result was 16 days of living in the wilds of the American plains. Shannon had quickly run out of ammunition and been reduced to living off grapes and plums. Weak and disheartened, he had finally given up hope of catching up to the Corps. He had then settled onto the banks of the Missouri, hoping that a trader heading downstream to St. Louis would find him and take him back east. So, with the Corps of Discovery back to full strength, the men pushed up the Missouri. With all the migrating herd animals, food was plentiful. On September 14th, Clark would kill what he called a prairie goat, but today we know as a pronghorn. And with fall approaching, the weather grew milder, meaning that there was less work under the sweltering sun and fewer mosquitoes. As a result, the expedition made good progress, traveling 20 and 25 miles a day. During all of this, Lewis and Clark continued to collect specimens, map the river, and take observations of everything around them. One thing they noted was the quality of the land. It would make excellent farmland. However, they rightfully noted that the lack of timber would be an issue for future settlers. On September 23rd, the expedition would approach what is present-day Pierre, South Dakota. Here, they met several young Sioux Indians. These were Teton Sioux, or Lakota. The Teton Sioux were considered great hunters of beaver, and their pelts were lauded at being the finest, garnering premium prices. 
Almost all of the fur trade was done with the British in the north, something the Americans understood and very much wanted to change. The Americans had lost their translator, Pierre Dorian, so now they had to rely on George Druyer to converse with the Sioux using sign language, plus Private Pierre Cruzette, who was part Omaha Indian and knew some basics of the Sioux tongue. The Indians informed the Americans that there were two villages nearby. The Americans gave the Sioux some tobacco and let them know that they would come and visit. While this all seems like a pretty good start, the next day things would take a decidedly adversarial turn. The only horse that the expedition had left was stolen, and naturally the Americans blamed the Sioux. The captains told the tribe's representatives that they would not tolerate being abused and demanded the horse's return. They threatened to not speak to any of the Sioux chiefs. Later that day, the Americans were told that their horse would be returned to them as the two sides prepared to meet. But the incident made both sides wary, with threats hanging in the air. All of this meant that when the Corps of Discovery arrived at the Indian camp on the river at Pierre, South Dakota, Lewis and Clark would be ready to fight if necessary. The resulting negotiations were replete with missteps on both sides. The lack of a true interpreter was critical here, as nuance was lost in sign language and half-understood words. Lewis gave his typical welcome speech to the Sioux, but cut it off, realizing that no one was really understanding what he was saying. Clark would write, quote, We feel much at the loss for want of an interpreter. End quote. Instead, the Americans turned to the tried-and-true dog and pony show, shooting off the cannon, doing a close-order drill, and showing off some cool things to the Indians, such as a magnifying glass. Lewis and Clark then brought out some presents for the chiefs who had assembled. Medals, a hat, a coat, tobacco, typical stuff, and not particularly impressive to the Sioux. The captains then brought the chiefs onto the keelboat and offered them whiskey. Once on the boat, the captains reported that one of the chiefs, a man named the Partisan, pretended to be drunk and demanded one of the pirogues and all of its contacts in order to allow the expedition to continue upriver. Then, several natives would actually put their hands on one of the pirogues as if to take it, and at the same time, the Partisan would become aggressive in tone and actions towards Captain Clark. Clark would respond by taking out his sword and calling the men to arms. It set up a potentially bloody confrontation. The cannon and blunderbusses were readied, rifles were leveled, Lewis himself reportedly stood by the cannon, ready to light the fuse that would start a battle, maybe even a war. Now, if such a fight broke out, the Sioux would have fallen by the dozens, maybe hundreds. But the court was no match for the numbers of the Teton Sioux. They would have been forced to retreat or been wiped out. And if the Sioux had captured the keelboat, they would have gained a modern arsenal of rifles and shot and powder that would have made them a formidable military force. Luckily, cooler heads prevailed. One of the chiefs, Black Buffalo, calmed his people and the threat subsided. Black Buffalo then came on the keelboat and would sleep on board along with two of his warriors. A major conflict was thus avoided. The next day, hundreds of curious Sioux lined the river as the Corps sailed onward, reaching the village of Black Buffalo, where the population numbered around 1,000. Lewis and Clark invited some of the Sioux on board the keelboat as a way to impress them. We can't forget, no one had sailed such a big vessel this far upriver. It would have been an amazing sight for these people to behold. The Sioux would then invite Lewis and Clark to visit their village. As it turns out, the Sioux had recently defeated the Omaha in a battle and taken many prisoners. While unlucky for the Omaha Indians, it was good fortune for Lewis and Clark. As noted, Private Cruzette was part Omaha, and he spoke the language. Now the expedition could communicate to the Sioux through the Omaha prisoners. The Sioux village was celebrating their victory over the Omaha, and there was feasting and dancing. With great ceremony, Lewis and Clark were carried into the village on decorated buffalo robes. The two sides held a council, with the Americans asking the Sioux to make peace with the Omaha and release all the prisoners they had taken, a suggestion that the Sioux likely thought was crazy. Ultimately, nothing really came out of these discussions. When the council was done, there was feasting, and women were offered to the American captains, but we are told that they refused. 
By the way, the members of the Corps of Discovery will have plenty of sex with the natives over the next couple of years. Most of these men were single, and amongst many of the native tribes, sexual fidelity was not a high priority. In fact, relations with visitors was often encouraged, as it was a sign of good hospitality. Anyhow, despite the feasting and better vibes, the situation with the Sioux remained tense, and it only grew more on edge when Private Cruzette went and spoke with the Omaha prisoners. He was told that the Sioux were planning to ambush the Americans. This, as you can imagine, put everyone on edge. It was at this time that an accident almost triggered a conflict. A cable holding the keelboat in place broke, sending the boat spinning on the river. The Americans began to freak out as the keelboat spun out of control. People were running everywhere and yelling. Next, the Sioux freaked out, thinking that the Americans were attacking them, perhaps aided by a war party of Omaha Indians. So, guns and knives and swords and bows were ready. But, luckily, everyone grasped the situation before someone let loose an arrow or fired a rifle. In the end, calm was restored, but things were far from wonderful. The Teton Sioux were powerful, and they were accustomed to getting what they wanted. They believed that this was their land, and the river, and access up and down the river, was something that they controlled at this point. By tradition, they felt that they could extract a toll. The traders and trappers and merchants who had come before had paid for access to the river for years. So that is what they said to the Americans. If you want to move upriver, pay up. But the Americans weren't budging. Lewis and Clark refused to pay any sort of tribute beyond what had already been offered. The river, they told them, was an American river, not a Sioux river and they could travel it as they pleased. Frankly, Lewis and Clark were being headstrong. Their desire to show strength, plus their natural sense of indignation, was more than a bit dangerous, even reckless. In the end, the Americans would grudgingly hand over some minor payments to the Sioux and dared them to take more. Then they would continue up the Missouri. A confrontation, again, was narrowly avoided. The encounter with the Teton Sioux had gone poorly from start to finish. Lewis and Clark had done little to convince the Sioux to join the American cause, and let's remember, the Teton Sioux, unlike the Yankton Sioux to the south, already had a good relationship trading with the British in the north. If the Americans came up the river and traded with the Yankton Sioux, it would threaten the prosperity of the Teton Sioux. This made many of the Teton Sioux antagonistic from the start. However, despite the aggressive tone of the Sioux, and the sides nearly starting a fight, the Sioux were reluctant to come into conflict with the well-armed Americans. They had never seen such a force in their lives. The Corps of Discovery numbered around 50 men, all armed with modern and deadly weapons. Also, during all of this, the Americans made it very clear that if anything happened to them, more soldiers, lots more, would follow. In the end, the Americans would depart the Sioux village, but the threat of an ambush was hanging over them for days. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. As October rolled around, the weather grew more and more mild. The mosquitoes went away, and migrating duck and geese were added to the men's diets. At night, the core would wake up to a light frost. It was perfect weather for being outdoors. During this month, Private Cruzette would be the first American to come across a grizzly bear. The men in the party had heard stories of these great bears from the natives and the frontiersmen in the party, and they had seen their footprints. They would quickly find out how dangerous a grizzly could be. 
A grizzly is not the kind of creature to back down from a challenge, unlike most animals, which would run at the sound of a rifle. A grizzly bear will charge someone it sees as a threat. Also, a grizzly can withstand multiple gunshot wounds and still keep coming. With the slow-loading rifles, trying to bring down a grizzly would be an immense risk. So, up the Missouri River went the Corps of Discovery. On October 8th, the expedition reached the mouth of the Grand River, a tributary of the Missouri. There was a three-mile-long island here, and on it were three villages, the home to the Arakara tribe. The Arakara were believed to have diverged from the Pawnee several hundred years prior to this time, and around 1780 or so, their numbers were large, upwards of 25 to 30,000 in more than 30 villages. However, like most Native American tribes, disease had decimated their ranks. Now their numbers were maybe two to 3,000 in only three villages. The Arakara were farmers, and at this time, they had a good relationship with the Sioux. I want to mention that when we talk about the various tribes, it is often difficult to say something like, Tribe A lives here and Tribe B controls this. Things were not always that simple. The Sioux didn't control a huge swath of land with fixed borders. There were different bands of Sioux, and within those bands there were further divisions. Depending on the tribe, you might have a greater chief, or you might not. And the areas of control fluctuated depending on the time of year, as some tribes follow the migrating herd animals, such as the buffalo. This was hard for the Americans at the time to really understand. Each tribe must have a leader, each tribe must control a space of territory, but it was much more complicated than that. In the case of the Arakara, as noted, they were mostly farmers, and they worked with the Sioux, trading crops with their neighbors and providing a buffer against the Mandan Indians to the north. Because of this close relationship with the Sioux, Lewis and Clark felt that they were key to the area. If the Sioux could not be trusted or dealt with, then the idea was that if they could turn the Arakara to the American side, it would help isolate the powerful Sioux. At the Arakara villages, the Americans would run into some good luck. Living amongst the natives was a pair of traders, Joseph Gravelines and Pierre-Antoine Tabo. Both spoke Arakara, and Gravelines spoke Sioux in French as well. Gravelines agreed to serve as an interpreter, and both men would provide valuable information about what lay upriver. Gravelines would also agree to come further up the river to the Mandan villages. Lewis and Clark would have a formal meeting with the Arakara on October 10th. Lewis would give his speech, promoting trade with the Americans, and encouraging the Arakara to shun the Sioux and make peace with the Mandan nation in the north. As always, the Americans presented gifts. They would offer the Arakara needles, beads, cloth, scissors, vermilion paint, knives, tomahawks, and more. If you think this sounds better than what they gave other tribes, you are right. You would think that Lewis and Clark would have wanted to flatter the Sioux more than the Arakara, but the guess is that their plan was to pry away the Sioux allies instead of just trying to buy off the Sioux. To celebrate the Americans' arrival, there would be a bit of a feast. As the Arakara were farmers, there was corn and squash and beans. York, Clark's slave, was a source of astonishment to the Indians, who had never seen a black man. Another positive for the men of the court was there was sex to be had. The Arakara believed that a woman could gain the power of a man by having sex with him. Thus, the women were encouraged to engage in relations with the Americans, who were likely thrilled at the idea. As we talked about earlier, this was not an unusual thing, and Lewis and Clark did not try to stop it. However, one thing that the relations with the natives brought to the party was venereal disease. Venereal disease, which some believe originated from Central America and the Caribbean, was brought to the area by traders and merchants and trappers. It was a common affliction in many native tribes, and it was now passed on to the men of the Corps. In the end, the Arikara expressed their desire to strike a peace with the Mandan Indians, but they were wary, saying that they would have to defend themselves if provoked. One of the Arikara chiefs, in a sign of good faith, agreed to go north with the Americans to meet with the Mandan. The chiefs also agreed to consider going to Washington, D.C. in the future. But again, the success of these meetings would be fleeting. Each tribe in each village would have to defend itself when the time came, 
and that would dampen any hopes of long-term peace. However, in the end, it was the most successful of the core dealings with the native tribes to date. Lewis and Clark believed that the Sioux bullied the Arakara, and they felt that they had put a bit of a wedge between the two tribes, which is exactly what they wanted to do. Before departing the Arakara villages, the Corps would have a problem from within their own ranks. The date was October 13th, and according to records, Private John Newman, who had fallen under the influence of the disgraced former Corps member, Moses Reed, said things that were, quote, repeated expressions of a highly criminal and mutinous nature, end quote. We don't know the specifics of this, but the likely story is that Newman got tired of being worked hard and long, and at the urging of Reed, took to complaining about the situation and promoted dissension amongst the men. These complaints crossed a line at some point, hence the mention of mutiny. In a military outfit, this was unacceptable, and the captains acted accordingly. Newman would be put on trial, and ten of the men of the Corps would find him guilty. He was sentenced to 75 lashes and kicked out of the Corps. He would be required to continue with the expedition, doing hard labor, and would then return to St. Louis in the spring. On October 14th, the expedition continued their journey north. The destination of Lewis and Clark was the Mandan villages, located near what is modern-day Bismarck, North Dakota. It was the center of power of the Mandan tribe. The Mandan Indians were especially important to the expedition because the Mandan villages were a center of trade in the plains. Since the arrival of European traders in the 1790s, it was the place that many tribes came to trade, including the Cheyenne, Arapaho, Crow, and many others. Europeans would come upriver from St. Louis, and from the north came the British and Canadian traders, who represented the famed Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company. They were the frontier trading titans of the era, and they were the exact people the Americans wanted to keep from gaining too much influence in the area. The expedition would come across a group of 25 Mandan Indians on October 24th. Amongst the Mandan was Big White, who was one of the two major Mandan chiefs. The encounter went well, and the Mandan made ready to welcome the approaching Americans. Two days later, the Corps of Discovery would reach the lands of the Mandan Indians. The Mandan had five villages, three of which were minor. The most important were the two located on the Missouri, the first led by the aforementioned Big White, who commanded a village on the west bank of the river, and the other led by Black Cat, who was a bit further up the river and on the eastern bank. The Mandan Indians numbered about four to 5,000 and could muster up to 1,400 warriors. Another nearby tribe, the Hadatsa, were located on the Knife River, a tributary of the Missouri. They were allies of the Mandan and led by One-Eye. The Hadatsa could gather nearly 500 warriors if called upon. The arrival of the Corps and their keelboat brought out the Mandan people in droves. The Mandan were a prosperous and powerful tribe, and they welcomed the Americans, seeing an opportunity to further enhance their status and power. When the Americans informed them that they wanted to spend the winter with them, the Mandan were happy to hear the news. Lewis and Clark would be aided by a Frenchman named René Jessam, a trader who had lived in the villages for 15 years. He had a native wife and was fully integrated in Mandan society. Few whites could match Jessam's knowledge and experience in the upper Missouri. He was hired to serve as an interpreter, and Lewis and Clark would gather a lot of valuable information from the man. On October 29th, the first council between the Mandan and the Americans took place. Lewis gave his speech and introduced the Arakara chief who had accompanied them north. This was a unique opportunity because Lewis and Clark were actually attempting to broker a peace between two tribes. Before, it was just them encouraging the natives to make peace with their neighbors, but now they were actually involved in the process. Captain Clark was skeptical of these attempts as the native Indians weren't accustomed to this kind of diplomacy. In the end, some vague promises were made. Peace was a great idea, but easier said than done. Like most of the native tribes the Americans had met, the Mandan were disappointed by the lack of cool presence, and as noted, they were wary of the peace efforts. However, the Mandan were interested in furthering their role as a trading hub. The opportunity was of great interest. 
the Mandan chief, Black Cat, even agreed to go to Washington, D.C. At this time, the Americans would also encounter a presence that hovered over the region, the British. Traders from Canada had been coming to the Mandan villages for more than a decade. Here, the Americans met Hugh McCracken of the Northwest Company. The man was a regular in the village, as were others from his company and the Hudson's Bay Company. McCracken was getting ready to head back to Canada, so Lewis wrote out a letter and gave it to him to pass along to his bosses. The letter informed the British traders about the sale of the region to the United States. Lewis also told them that he had no intention of disrupting trade so long as the British observed U.S. sovereignty. Lewis told the British that the Americans were on a scientific mission and inquired about the lands to the west. He also invited the British to come visit the Americans that winter. As for the British, they were polite, and no doubt they welcomed news and information from back east. But always remember that what they did was to help themselves, not the Americans. The British merchants had years of relationships built up with the natives throughout the plains, and they saw the American expedition as a threat to their profits. The next thing on the American agenda was preparing for the upcoming winter. Lewis and Clark went about finding a good spot to build a small fort. They needed a place that would offer enough timber. They would find a suitable location on the north bank of the Missouri, seven miles below the mouth of the Knife River, opposite one of the Mandan villages. Work was begun on the fort on November 3rd. Meanwhile, some of the French voyagers, the men who had rowed the pirogues up the river, departed, heading back down the Missouri in boats they built themselves. In their small canoes, they would move quickly and beat the inevitable freeze that would overtake the river in the coming weeks. The rest of the voyagers would spend the winter at the Mandan villages and depart in the spring with the keelboat. However, one of the frontiersmen would become a permanent member of the Corps. That was Baptiste Lepage, a French-Canadian fur trapper. Lepage was sworn in as a private in the United States Army. On November 4th, the Americans would meet Toussaint Charbonneau, a 45-year-old French-Canadian frontiersman who lived with the Hadatsa. Charbonneau had at one time worked for the Northwest Company, but he was now an independent trader. Charbonneau had two wives, both of whom were Shoshone, or Snake, Indians, a band that lived near the Rocky Mountains at the headwaters of the Missouri. Their village was reportedly located at a place called Three Forks, where three rivers came together to form the Missouri. The two women had been captured four years earlier by a Hadatsa raiding party. Charbonneau had either won or been awarded or bought the women. Because of this, Charbonneau is sometimes vilified in history books, depicted as a lecherous older man buying teenage girls for his pleasure. And honestly, that's probably not far from the truth. But this was not an uncommon thing at this time and place. The two women were named Otter Woman and Sacagawea. Of Otter Woman, we know nothing about. She disappears from the history books. But Sacagawea, well, she's sort of a legend, forever linked to the Lewis and Clark expedition. At this time, Sacagawea would have been 16 years old, and she was pregnant with her first child. Captains Lewis and Clark recognized an opportunity here, as Charbonneau's wives were links to the lands to the west, lands they knew virtually nothing about. Charbonneau would be offered a job as an interpreter for the Corps, so long as one of his wives came with him. Lewis and Clark's thinking went as such. The Shoshone Indians were to the west. Sacagawea could, of course, speak their language. She could also speak Hadatsa. Thus, she could translate to Charbonneau, who knew Hadatsa. Charbonneau would then translate to one of the French-speaking members of the party, who in turn would be able to translate everything to English for the Americans. It was convoluted, but Lewis and Clark, after the near disaster with the Titansu, when there was no translator, understood that they needed to speak the native language. Also, they needed to find a way over the mountain next spring, and befriending the Shoshone was their best shot. For that to work, they needed to be able to communicate reliably. We will talk more about Sacagawea and Charbonneau in our next episode. Now, the Corps set out to build their fort, which they would call Fort Mandan. It would be their home for the next five months. 
When complete in late December, Fort Mandan would consist of two rows of huts, a palisade on the riverside, a gate, and a sentry post where the swivel gun was mounted. The outer walls were 18 feet high. So as the Americans settled in and built their fort, they would, surprisingly, find that the world of the Native American Indians was filled with politics and intrigue. The Corps and the Mandan people enjoyed an excellent relationship that winter. However, the Mandan were protective of their newly found place as best friends to the Americans. To that end, the Mandan told the nearby Hadatsa that the Americans were allied with the Sioux. This was done to discourage the Hadatsa from trading with the newcomers, and thus strengthening the potential trading monopoly the Mandan had with the Americans. Lewis found out about this and tried to smooth things over with the Hadatsa, but they were wary of him and his attempts to treat with them would fail. Also, despite promoting peace and harmony between the various tribes, conflict continued between them. In late November, a group of Sioux and Arakara attacked some Mandan people. The Americans wanted to put on a display of their power, and Clark led 21 men to aid the Mandan in chasing down the war party. Lewis and Clark thought that if they showed the power of the Americans, it would keep everyone in line. However, the Mandan weren't really interested in American assistance. Winter was coming, and the Mandan would get the revenge in the spring, when the weather was better. That's the way it was done. The truth is, this was the way of life for the Plains Indians, and the Americans just didn't understand it at times. Example, Lewis and Clark would try to get an important chief to make peace with another tribe without understanding that that chief, no matter how important, didn't always speak for the other villages in his tribe. And to be honest, each chief only had so much influence within its own people. When the Americans pitched the idea of peace between various tribes, a lot of the older natives liked it. But these guys had lived through their younger years and accumulated victories and glories. But the younger warriors had not done that, and this was important in their culture. Glory was currency, and you got that through raiding and fighting and winning battles. They wanted to earn their stripes, they were restless, and just sitting around was not in their nature. Again, this was something the Americans never really grasped, and the American attempts to broker peace between the various tribes was mostly doomed from the get-go. So, as Fort Mandan was built, Lewis and Clark prepared the expedition for surviving the winter. The Mandan Indians were helpful, providing food and advice. On December 7th, the natives would invite the Americans to go on a buffalo hunt with them. Using horses provided by the Mandan, 16 Americans, including Lewis, tracked down the buffalo and killed 20 over the next two days. The buffalo would provide food as well as warmth. Lewis would note the amazing skill of the Indians, who rode bareback and shot their bows with two hands. In fact, in his journals, he would devote multiple entries to the Mandan horsemanship skills. The defining trait of the winter at Fort Mandan that year was the cold. In early December, the temperatures dropped all the way down to more than 40 degrees below zero. The Americans had never been exposed to such cold. They were astounded at the Indians, who could spend nights out on the prairie with no fire and only a buffalo robe for warmth. As the cold took hold of the region, the Missouri River froze solid, and much to the dismay of the captains, the keelboat got locked into the ice before the men could pull it ashore. They would not get the boat out of the river until February 26, 1805, allowing the Corps to conduct repairs. Ultimately, the winter at the Mandan villages would be made livable by building a good place to house themselves, the hospitality of the Mandan people, and most importantly, the discipline of the men and the leadership of Captains Lewis and Clark. I think this is something we can never forget about the Lewis and Clark expedition. The men, by all accounts, respected their captains. They followed them willingly and with confidence, and Lewis and Clark should be commended for picking quality people. For the most part, these were good soldiers. They accepted their roles and understood what they needed to do to survive and thrive. As we have said, these were the best of the best, and they were showing it. In the five months at Fort Mandan, there would be no reported desertions or fights or any of the things that typically accompanied men trapped in a small location for an extended period. Now, one thing that no doubt contributed to the Corps' good spirits was the relationship with the Mandan Indians. 
Frankly, they got along great. The Americans simply became a part of the social fabric that bound the villages together. They hunted together, ate together, interacted with each other, and celebrated together. It was not uncommon for the Americans and the Mandan to play music together. Private Cruzette was a talented fiddle player who wowed the Indians with his skills. Also, there was sex. Lots of it. Like the Arakara, the Mandan women believed that by having sex with someone, you could get some of their power, and the Americans were seen as powerful. This made for a lot of satisfied American soldiers that winter. It also made for a lot of problems with venereal disease. The only issue that arose during the winter occurred on February 9, 1805. Private Thomas Howard came back to the fort after dark, and rather than have the gate opened, he climbed the wall. Unfortunately, an Indian saw him and promptly did the same thing. Now, you might think this is amusing, but it exposed a critical weakness to the defenses of the fort. Not that the Americans thought the Mandan would attack them, but it demonstrated that a group of Indians could climb the walls and cut the Americans' throats any time they wanted. The captains were furious at Howard. As a result, the private was put on trial for his misdeed. He would be court-martialed and sentenced to fifty lashes, a steep punishment for a crime that was not malicious in nature. Perhaps sensing how harsh the punishment was, Lewis would forgive the lashing. After that, there would be no more discipline issues at Fort Mandan. Life at the fort was no doubt tedious, but not without dangers. The Arakara and the Sioux were always a threat. The men of the Corps, therefore, were always on alert. In mid-February, four members of the Corps, including George Druyer, were set upon by a band of a hundred Sioux while out hunting. The Americans lost a couple of horses, a sled, and some knives, but escaped without injuries. Meriwether Lewis would lead a group of 24 volunteers, plus some Mandan Indians who wanted to join in on the fun, against the Sioux. The Americans would spend a week in the wild, but would not catch the Sioux, who were faster and stealthier. But the pursuit would have its positives, as the Americans would go hunting, bringing back 36 deer and 14 elk. As noted, much of the Corps' food was procured by trading with the Mandan. Without the Indians, the survival of the Americans would have been in doubt. So, in exchange for food, which was mostly corn, the Americans traded goods and services. Lewis himself would be the core physician, and the Mandan would come to him for help when their remedies failed them. Venereal disease was an issue for both American and Indian, and frostbite was another common occurrence. Also, one of the men of the Corps, Private John Shields, was an accomplished blacksmith. A forge was set up at Fort Mandan, and the Americans did a lively business repairing and crafting metal items for the Indians. Shields even learned how to make a specific battle axe that the Mandan wanted. He could not make them fast enough. Otherwise, the Corps battled boredom and prepared for the eventual departure from Fort Mandan. As for Captains Lewis and Clark, this was the time to gather information. They would question everyone about what lay ahead. This included the traders who would occasionally come south from their winter quarters to visit the Americans. These visits were cordial. The Americans and British both appreciated having company of men from their own world. Several would later write about their encounters with the Americans. One man, Francois-Antoine Le Rock, complimented Lewis, who had spent an entire day fixing his compass. Despite all of this, Lewis found it hard to hide his bitterness toward the British, a trait he had inherited from his family. Lewis had, after all, lost his father in the Revolutionary War, and his family and their neighbors had seen their homes burned and ravaged during the conflict. So, as spring approached, the Corps made ready to move on from their winter quarters. The men wrote letters to be shipped back east, the keelboat was repaired, and all the specimens and notes that Lewis and Clark had collected were made ready for travel. And most importantly, the expedition was made ready to move west. The ice began to break up, and the birds started coming north. One of the most important things for Lewis and Clark was securing the services of Toussaint Charbonneau, and even more importantly, Sacagawea. Remember, Sacagawea was 16 years old and pregnant when she had met Lewis and Clark. She would give birth to a baby boy on February 11, 1803, with Lewis attending the birth. 
The boy was named Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau, but he would be nicknamed Pompey, or Pomp, by Captain Clark. Anyhow, in March, Charbonneau agreed to sign on with the expedition, with Sacagawea to accompany him. This would give the Corps someone who spoke the Shoshone language. On April 5, 1805, the two pirogues in the keelboat were put into the river for the first time that year. Two days later, the keelboat headed downstream under the command of Corporal Richard Warfington. The keelboat was packed with all the stuff the expedition had accumulated. There were journals, observations, sketches, and notes from Lewis and Clark and the sergeants of the party. There were also specimens, including minerals, soils, flora, fauna, and animals. Historian Stephen Ambrose says that the keelboat brought back 108 botanical specimens and 68 mineral specimens. There were skeletons of pronghorn, horns of a mule deer, and various skins. There were also numerous live animals, but most of them would die on the journey east. Only a few magpies, plus a prairie dog, got to President Jefferson. Amongst all the papers was an updated map of the region. The detail of the Missouri is really, really good, but the rest is speculation, information the captains had gotten from second-hand sources. About the native Indians, there was information on 72 different tribes and bands. There were notes on their numbers, locations, and their disposition. Again, some of it was second-hand in nature, but even that was quite valuable, and it all helped the Americans gain a greater understanding of the territory that they sought to rule. Regarding the fur trade, Lewis said to Jefferson that the Americans needed to put a choke on the trade between the Sioux and the British. To do this, Lewis suggested setting up forts and trading posts up the Missouri. Lewis also wrote about what he expected to find in the coming months. Here is what he forecast. The expedition would head west into the land of the Shoshone and the Nez Perce, as well as the Blackfeet. The expedition would go up the Missouri River and take the northernmost of the Three Forks, which, they were told, was navigable to a chain of high mountains. From here it was a day or so walk to the other side, where a great river awaited. This was exactly what the Americans wanted to hear. The Rocky Mountains could easily be crossed. A river, presumably the Columbia or one of its tributaries, would then take them to the Pacific Ocean. The expedition could be to the Pacific by summer and back to the Mandan villages by winter. That was it. Easy peasy. Too bad it was wrong. But in the spring of 1805, the Corps of Discovery, including her two captains, were confident of their mission. Their prize, the Pacific Ocean, was in reach. I do want to mention one other goal of the expedition, something that I have neglected. When the United States purchased the Louisiana Territory, we talked about the borders of the purchase. The purchase, according to the United States, included the Mississippi River and the western tributaries of the river. That included the Missouri. Exactly where the Missouri reached was unknown but there was a secret hope by Thomas Jefferson that the river would extend into Canada. This would give the United States a claim, no matter how tenuous, to these lands. So, while reaching the Pacific was the primary goal of the expedition, finding the northernmost reaches of the Missouri and its tributaries was a secondary goal. On April 7, 1805, the expedition departed the Mandan villages. The support group departed with the keelboat, heading downriver. It was well-armed and traveling with the current, and it would make the Jersey much easier than the voyage upriver. As for the Corps of Discovery, they now had two pirogues plus six smaller canoes that they had traded for with the Indians. The advantage now was that the smaller boats were lighter and faster. The captains figured that they could make 20 and 25 miles in a day. The disadvantage was that the expedition could no longer carry vast amounts of supplies. Guns, ammunition, powder, food, medicine, trading goods, all of it was now available, but in limited quantities. The Corps itself was now down to Captains Lewis and Clark, plus three sergeants and 23 privates. Also in the party were two St. Charbonneau and Sacagawea, plus their two-month-old child, Pompey, as well as George Druyer and Clark's slave, York. And let us not forget Seaman, Lewis's big Newfoundland dog. So that is it. This is where we will leave the Corps of Discovery, as it gets ready to depart the Mandan villages and head up the Missouri into lands unknown. 
Next time, we will follow the expedition as they struggle to find a way over the Rocky Mountains and reach the Pacific Ocean on the continent's west coast. Thank you for listening. I hope you have enjoyed things, and I will see you next time. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.